0: This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer and welcome to Keep the Faith, my bi-weekly podcast returning this week after our Passover break to continue exploring contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. I hope you all enjoyed the Passover holiday and that it was a meaningful one for you. The debt ceiling is topic A these days. It's a limit on how much debt the federal government can carry at any given time, and it was reached in January. It must be increased sometime this summer to avoid a first-ever U.S. government default on its obligations. At the moment, we're facing such a default which is a nightmare scenario, according to everyone, including the Democrats and Republicans responsible for seeing to it that a default never happens. Just when this summer we reach that scenario depends on the tax revenue sent in by tax day this week. If the tax revenue is lower than has been projected, that scenario may hit sometime in June. If all goes as expected, though, we may not see it before September. Default means that for the first time in its history, the United States would be unable to pay its bills. Among other things, the Treasury Department will be unable to pay out interest on the national debt, Social Security and Medicare benefits, military salaries, and other payments. The Treasury would also be unable to pay bondholders back the money and interest they were promised when they bought Treasury bonds. As the White House put it in December, The U.S. credit rating, quote, would almost certainly be downgraded and interest rates would broadly rise for many consumer loans, making products like auto loans and mortgages more expensive for families who are subject to interest rate changes or taking out new loans, unquote. And that begins a ripple effect that would be felt worldwide, not just here in the United States. On Wednesday, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said the Republican-controlled House would likely vote as early as next week on a debt ceiling bill. He also outlined what that bill would entail. It would set the federal budget back to the 2022 fiscal year level, which would amount to around $130 billion in spending cuts for fiscal year 2024. These cuts will have their greatest impacts in federal energy, climate, labor, science, education, and research programs, but would leave untouched most Pentagon programs and services, especially those for veterans. Exactly which federal programs will be cut will depend on the Congressional Appropriations Committees. Administration officials predict that such deep budget cuts will mean Social Security checks coming later and will force many low-income Americans off of food stamps and Medicaid rolls because of more stringent work requirement rules they would be unable to meet. The proposed bill would also reduce college aid for needy students, affordable housing programs, and could result in even more flight delays the bill also would cap federal spending at 1% a year. Very significantly, and perhaps even cynically, the bill would only raise the debt ceiling through early March, setting up a new budget battle just months before the next congressional and presidential elections. Also, perhaps cynically, the proposal would take away the $80 million Congress gave the IRS last year that it said it needed to go after unpaid taxes. That would surely encourage large donors to help fund GOP campaigns next year. Even if such a bill passes the House, it's unlikely that the Democratic-controlled Senate would go along with it, or that President Joe Biden would sign it, On the off chance that it did get through the Senate. The only way to avoid such an enormous economic catastrophe is for both sides to sit down in good faith and compromise on their positions. However, with control of Congress and the White House at stake in 2024, neither side appears willing to scale back on some of its demands in order to reach a compromise. In fact, President Biden on Thursday appeared to add to the stalemate by pledging $1 billion to a major international climate aid fund, the Green Climate Fund, which is something congressional Republicans adamantly oppose. Biden also said he would ask Congress to allocate $500 million over five years for the Amazon Fund, which is an effort to end deforestation. This, too, is something congressional Republicans adamantly oppose. The timing of Biden's action is sure to make raising the debt ceiling that much more difficult. And so, the topic for this week is one I discussed nearly two years ago on this podcast, what Judaism says about the benefits of compromise. Compromise is how things usually get done in democratic societies. Compromise, in fact, has done much to make this country great, something both parties love to note over and over again. Lack of compromise, though, is what's bringing this country down today. Undoubtedly, the most significant compromise occurred 236 years ago. In early July 1787, the odds were high that the Constitutional Convention then underway would never reach agreement on a system of governments for the young republic. Throughout the convention until then, the consensus was that there should be a single legislative body. The structure of the national legislature was shaping up to be the deal-breaker. That's when Connecticut's Roger Sherman stepped in with what became known as the Great Compromise. Let there be two houses, not one, he said. One house would allocate seats proportionately, while the other would have equal representation for any law to pass, both houses would have to approve. On July 16th, 1787, the convention passed Sherman's Compromise by the razor-thin margin of one vote. Had it failed, there probably would not have been a constitution and no United States. There have been many other compromises throughout U.S. history. Sometimes they were reflected in the actions of a single individual who put country before party. At other times, they were reflected in members of the two parties coming together on otherwise contentious issues. The ability to compromise is what helped make this country better than it was and to make people's lives better than they were. Here are a few examples. In 1860, Abraham Lincoln, being fully aware of the great challenges the nation faced, chose, among others, four people for his cabinet whom he believed to be among America's best and brightest and extremely capable of meeting the challenges of their day. It didn't concern him that they also happened to be the very four men he beat out for the Republican nomination, all of whom could challenge him for the nomination in 1864. Lincoln chose this team of rivals as they're known, because he put the country first. In January 1945, as World War II was nearing an end, President Franklin D. Roosevelt was promoting the idea that nations in a post-war world had to engage in, quote, collective security, unquote. One of the country's leading voices for isolationism at the time was Republican Senator Arthur Vandenberg. In a 30-minute speech to the Senate that shocked his colleagues and the nation, he said that the, quote, gory science of mass murder, unquote, convinced him that isolation was no longer possible. He then wholeheartedly endorsed the principle of collective security. Vandenberg's speech laid the groundwork, for a bipartisan foreign policy that led to establishing the United Nations and NATO, and to such important international agreements as the Marshall Plan. Think where we would be today without the UN. Would Russia have stopped at Ukraine without NATO? In July 1945, Harry Truman, who had only become president three months earlier because Roosevelt had died, put country before party. He had a Supreme Court vacancy to fill. It should have gone to a Democrat because Truman was expected to follow FDR's lead, and FDR only appointed Democrats to the high court from the day he took office in 1933. In 1937, FDR even tried to pack the court with even more Democrats. Truman, however, chose a Republican, Senator Harold Burton, to fill that vacant seat. He was sending a message to both parties. America had just come out of a hot war and was facing a cold one. America needed bipartisan leadership, not partisan bickering. 1964 was a presidential election year. Lyndon Johnson had proposed the Civil Rights Act, but 21 Southern Democrats tried to kill it by launching a filibuster that eventually lasted for 75 days, one of the longest filibusters in U.S. history. Unable to break that filibuster with just Democratic votes, because at the time a two-thirds majority was needed, Majority Leader Senator Mike Mansfield reached out to Minority Leader Everett McKinley Dirksen for help. Dirksen got 26 other Republicans to sign on, and on July 2, 1964, these Republicans handed LBJ a monumental victory when the Senate voted 73 to 27 in favor of the Civil Rights Act. What's remarkable about this is that July 2nd, 1964, was just 11 days before the start of the Republican presidential nominating convention that would choose someone to run against Johnson. In fact, It was Dirksen himself who was to be the one who'd put the name of Johnson's opponent, Arizona Senator Barry M. Goldwater, into nomination. So handing him such a victory was putting country before politics. As an aside, several times in his nominating speech, Dirksen referred to Goldwater as quote, the grandson of a Jewish fish peddler, unquote. Apparently, Jewish was not a dirty word in conservative Republican circles 60 years ago. In 1977, compromise saved the nation's food stamp program, which was under attack by Republican lawmakers who were put off by the program's increasing cost. Republican Senator Bob Dole and Democratic Senator George McGovern came up with the compromise that saved the program. Dole stepped up once again, this time in 1983, when he teamed with New York Democrat Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan to save the Social Security program before it ran out of money. In 1997, Senator Edward Kennedy introduced a bill to create what he called the State Child Health Insurance Program, better known as S-CHIP. If S-CHIP passed, It would be the largest expansion of taxpayer-funded health insurance coverage for children in this country since Medicaid was established. Because Republicans controlled both houses of Congress, the bill seemed destined for defeat. Senate Majority Leader Trent Lott, in fact, said there was no way he would let that bill pass. That's when Utah Republican Senator Orrin Hatch stepped in. He joined Kennedy as the bill's co-sponsor, infuriating some of his Republican colleagues and many conservative media commentators. But Hatch stuck to it. As he put it, quote, as a nation, as a society, we have a moral responsibility, unquote, to provide this coverage. The Republican leadership did everything it could to kill the bill, but it became the law nonetheless. Hatch put country before politics. Here's one last example. The late Senator John McCain hated the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known derisively as Obamacare. And when Republicans on July 28, 2017, put a bill on the Senate floor that would have effectively killed Obamacare, McCain left his sickbed in Arizona and flew to Washington to vote for that bill. Instead, with him as the deciding vote, he voted against the bill, not because he wanted to save the Affordable Care Act, but because his party was being heavy-handed in trying to kill it. There were no hearings held on that bill. There were no negotiations with the Democrats. Most important, though, as far as McCain was concerned, there were no provisions for replacing Obamacare with something else. Its only purpose was to kill Obamacare. And so at the last moment, McCain said no. Without a well-thought-out replacement plan to provide Americans with affordable health care, he later said, voting yes would have been wrong. Compromise helped make America great, but compromise requires that people of goodwill put country before partisanship. It requires people who are willing to sometimes let go of some of their most cherished beliefs in order to benefit the greater good. Where are those people today? They're certainly not in Congress, that's for sure. And I'm not sure they're in the White House either, not with the 2024 elections looming. Republicans have been digging themselves ever deeper into the radically conservative far-right, while Democrats have been doing the same in the progressive left. Proverbs has something to say to both sides, quote, "...survey the course you take, and all your ways will prosper. Do not swerve to the right or the left." Unquote. Proverbs said that because the Torah itself insists on it. In Deuteronomy, for example, we're told to, quote "...not turn aside to the right or to the left." Unquote. Both political parties need to keep these and other Jewish teachings in mind as they go forward. The lesson in election 2020 is that an overwhelming majority of voters want no part of the political extremes, right or left. The Democrats should have swept a huge majority into the House of Representatives, but instead they lost seats in the House, the one part of the federal government that was purposely designed to be the most sensitive to voter opinion. And now Kevin McCarthy wields the Speaker's gavel. Which, by the way, he sometimes turns over to the rabidly far-right and anti-Semitic representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, whom he named Speaker Pro Temp in March. That voter opinion in 2020 was that people didn't like the direction they were told the Democrats were taking. The 2020 message to both parties is this. Either stick to the middle of the political road or get shoved onto the shoulder. Sticking to the middle of the road, though, will require both sides of the political divide to compromise, with the factions within their own ranks, and with the opposition party. The latest polls in 2023 show that voters don't like the direction either party is taking right now, and while that should be a wake-up call to start compromising, so far the opposite is happening. Judaism has much to say about this. In Exodus chapter 18, Moses' father-in-law Jethro advises him to choose as leaders of the people men, as Jethro put it, quote, who fear God, unquote, and quote, who spurn ill-gotten gain, unquote. The sage, Rabbi Elazar of Modi'in, explained what Jethro meant. Men who fear God, he said, refers to people who are willing to compromise. Men who spurn ill-gotten gain, he said, are those who look beyond their own self-interest in deciding issues. Another sage, Rav Hamnuna by name, interpreted a verse in the book of Ecclesiastes describing the qualities of a wise man by saying the verse refers to God because God, quote, knows how to effect compromise between two righteous individuals, unquote. His point was that the wise man understands the benefits of compromise. Maimonides, the Rambam, summed up Judaism's view this way, The right way is that disposition, which is equally distant from the two extremes, not being nearer to the one than to the other. Whoever observes in his dispositions the mean is termed wise. There is a limit to compromise, of course. The sage referred to as Rish Lakish, for example, said that any decision reached must be righteous, Equitable, kind, virtuous, pure, and pious. It follows then that any compromise must be just, equitable, kind, virtuous, pure, and pious. If a compromise doesn't meet that criteria, then that compromise should not be made. In its dealings with Republicans who put party ahead of country, the Democrats will have to consider this too, even if not compromising on some issues loses them votes. On the other hand, There's a heavy price to pay when compromise is altogether pushed aside, especially when a nation is as polarized as this country is today. The Book of One Kings relates how the united kingdom of David and Solomon split into two rival kingdoms because Solomon's son and his successor had no desire to compromise in negotiating the terms of his kingship with the twelve tribes. Had the prophet Isaiah lived at that time, he might have advised Solomon's son the way his words should today advise both parties Quote, Whenever you deviate to the right or to the left, your ears should heed the command that they hear from behind you, which says, This is the middle road, follow it. Unquote. Until our politicians in Washington hear that voice in their ears coming from behind them, I fear that. What was once the beacon of democracy will be nothing more than a dim bulb. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer. I hope you come back for my next podcast. And I'd like to hear what you have to say about this or my other podcasts. Go to www.shammai.org, www.shammai.org, and email me, please. Pray for our country, and with Israel's 75th birthday coming next week, pray for the peace of Jerusalem and all of Israel. If you don't get the Jewish standard and want to read my columns, go to the columns page of my website. shalom. Stay healthy. Keep wearing those N95 masks in indoor and outdoor gatherings, even if no one else is. New Jersey on Wednesday ended mask requirements for doctor's offices and medical facilities, which to my mind is absurd and dangerous, and above all, stay safe.